ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. <laughs> All right, welcome to the Launchpad Podcast. I'm Aaron. I'm Matt. And Matt, today we are talking about one of your favorite comic book characters. Yeah, uh, my man Daredevil, Matt Murdock, and I I don't just like him because of the red hair. (laughs) The man without fear. You like him because of those red tights. Mm -hmm. I like him because he's the only suit, well, he's the only superhero that wears boxer briefs as opposed to just regular briefs over his tights. Like if you look, (laughs) (laughs) most, most daredevils are drawn with straight lines on their thighs where their underwear is, whereas like Superman just has red briefs on, but daredevil is like myself, a boxer brief, man. Superman has like a mankini on. (laughs) Mm. That sounds good, too. <laughs> you just like him because he won't judge you on your looks. Matt Murdock? <laughs> yeah. Because he's like, who's there? Is this some sort of handsome boy? And I'm like, yes. He's like, I guess I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The man without fear, daredevil. I mean, he's a great character. He's a lot of fun. He's He's been around a while. He was invented 1964. He's created by Stan Lee. Stan Lee and Bill Everett, who's the artist at the time. A lot of his story stays unchanged throughout. His costume changes a little bit as we go on. I don't know why they didn't start with a red costume. Like, why would you start with a yellow yeah. costume? Yeah, the yellow costume was pretty weird. You know, I heard, I read a story, and now I've gone back and looked for the life of me. I can't find it. But I read a story that in the narration... Matt Murdock is like, yeah, I made my first costume, and it was that gross brown, black, red, yellow thing. And he's like, but what do you expect? I'm blind. And I was like, what a great <laughs> origin. But I've never been able to find that again. I can't. I think I've even Googled it. Anyone listening, if you guys know this stuff or are good at Googling, see if you could tell me what comic Matt Murdock reminisces about sewing that old costume and being blind and not knowing colors. Because if you think about it, that's the one thing he can't really figure out you know his fingertips are so sensitive that he can read that he can feel the text on regular newspaper or computer paper he can feel the text and read that but he can't tell you what color it is pretty much (laughs) he can almost like figure out anything else right but not what color things are He's a fun character because his heightened senses are superhuman, beyond belief. Like a bat, he can sonar, hear things, and see where things are. He can touch things, like you said, with his fingertips and just know exactly what's going on. Like he can hear people's heartbeats to know if they're lying. I've seen that done before. Mm-hmm. Like that's pretty amazing. He's he's a pretty incredible character. And one of the things that I know you like about him is he's always pretty down to earth. Even when he's fighting demons in hell, he's still like a street hero. Like he doesn't deal a lot with like aliens or like the time travel stuff that happens in say X-Men or Fantastic Four I mean he's dealt with some pretty demonic characters I mean he fights the devil at one point but we're gonna get that into that in a couple minutes and we have uh, an interview with someone who is responsible for that but absolutely when I read a superhero story I'm already giving you a superhero as far as suspending my disbelief so usually like I want it to be a slightly grounded real you know uh, something that I can relate to in my life once it starts being aliens or other dimensions or you know giant monsters and shit it, it gets a little formulaic for me and also like I guess just my preference I'd, I'd rather see I'd rather see him fight something that either I understand or I think would be like a good match. Like, Daredevil yeah. versus an alien? Ugh. Like, I guess Daredevil's going to win because he's the good guy, but, you know, Daredevil's just an Olympian athlete with 
heightened senses. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you got to think of when a good writer gets him, he thinks about his strength. I mean, I guess any character, right? You think about the strengths and the weaknesses of your protagonist and you craft a story around that. Yeah. And a lot of Daredevil's earlier stuff, you know, he wasn't necessarily a goofy character, but he fought silly characters like the Jester or Leapfrog, who was in a costume with a giant frog with springs on his feet. Or yeah. even Stiltman was just a guy in giant, like, Empire State Building-sized stilts. And it's like, Lame. Who, like, what's the best story that you could write involving those people? Although I did read a good one involving um, Leapfrog eventually, but that was Dave, uh, David Mack, I think, actually. Da- da- Mack and Bendis, I think Matt and David Mack wrote it. Daredevil underwent a renaissance in the 80s by none other than Frank Miller, and that's when yeah. that character like comic books in general at the time really started to be taken seriously and you know Frank Miller did some stuff that was slightly less believable but for the most part he was fighting other humans you know like the gladiator and the gladiator is just a guy who's crazy and thinks he's an old you know a gladiator of old but like those fights are down to earth and it's just two guys punching each other and you really feel for the way he writes it. You feel for both characters because the gladiator is an insane person. He doesn't mean to be doing that and Daredevil knows that and Daredevil is trying to not hurt him but how can he when he's killing people and also trying to kill Daredevil? It's a really, really great story, you know, and then obviously Frank Miller creates Elektra who is not only this great love interest as well as some some someone and something that fleshes out Daredevil's origin story but then yeah. becomes this this amazing character that has to do with his training and his love life and his loss eventually, right? It creates one of the greatest arch nemesis of, of, I think, any comic book, but certainly of Daredevil when Bullseye kills Elektra. I think this is one of the first great gritty reboots. Like, in the 80s, Batman got a gritty reboot, but like I think this is one of the ones that benefit, benefited the character so much because his character, at this point, when, when Frank Miller took over, it wasn't really going anywhere. He wasn't super popular, and then Frank Miller started writing him, and it was like, whoa, this can be really good, really gritty, and really you know, like Sin City, like Batman, have a lot of of weight to it. Yeah, and in the 80s and 90s, they started to do this gritty, grimy, dirty, dark thing with a lot of characters. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But, you know, Frank Miller on Daredevil was one of the first, and it worked perfectly. He is a character that thrives in... I mean, he lives in this world, and that's how he has to to work, and that's how he has to live. The funny thing is, though, is this character has gone through so many iterations. Like you said, he started out as this, like, yellow, black, red, purple, like, ridiculously suited character, and then he got the red suit, and then, you know, Frank Miller gave him the gritty reboot, and then he had a couple iterations, and, and then Ben Affleck played him in the 2003 movie, and that was, like, more akin to, like, the Batman and Robin, like, the goofiness and the kind of the weird, a, a weird version that, that wasn't as serious as the comic books when they were still trying to figure out how to make a comic book movie, and then it got rebooted again with... Charlie Cox in the television series, which brought it back to the streets, brought it back to to being very gritty. And I, I like the TV series. I know there's certain things that, you know, that that I would have liked it if it did this or did that. But overall, like it kept the level of seriousness that I wanted from a Daredevil TV show. Yeah, the show is really great, and the show borrows and steals and and just flat out takes from a lot of contemporary Daredevil stories which are tried and true and are great. And the stuff that it modified, I can understand why it was modified, and I think for the for a whole, on the whole, it works. Yeah. I actually don't shit on the, the Ben Affleck movie as much as everybody else. It is by no means a good movie, but like you said, I feel like some of its failings, most of its failings, 
are in the fact that we didn't know how to make a really good comic book movie yet. And Ben Affleck was probably, I mean, I don't know who else was around at the time, but Ben Affleck is not the greatest idea as Matt Murdock, but also I didn't think he did a terrible job. The whole Electra storyline in it is bullshit. Uh, I hated the way they treated Bullseye. I hate fucking Colin Farrell, period. So the fact that he played one of my greatest comic book villains, like in my opinion, I love Bullseye. I love him in almost every book I've ever read him in, almost. And it was like, What's the idea of this character? All right, let's make him really stupid. And you're like, oh, fuck. But even if you if you can get over that, the movie itself is okay. And the fact that they fight each other and how they fight each other is really good. I think for me, that movie was the introduction of the sensory deprivation chamber that I think he sleeps in in that movie. And I thought that was yeah. a great idea. That is cool. And not that I don't, I think there's one or two comics that mentions it, but that's the first. I thought that was such a great thing because part of the reason I love this character is because Daredevil and Matt Murdock. I guess they're two different characters. They're two sides of the same coin, but I love both of them. There's very few, yeah. very few characters, superheroes at least, that I like both. You know, with the mask on and with the mask off, and I love the idea. Like he's almost a juxtaposition in and of himself. Whereas you know, by day he's a lawyer and he upholds the law, and everything about the law is so important. And then at night he goes out and punches people until he gets what he wants, and that's like. Think about how fucking cool that is as a it's story. It's like he gets to have his cake and eat it too. He's like, well, I get to uphold the law, but whenever the law doesn't work, I get to go punch it in the face. Yeah, and then you have someone <laughs> like, you know, you have Frank Castle who does the same thing, but his line is just fur, you know, further down the in the sand. And well, Daredevil, that's why I think they work so well when they're paired against each other or with right. each other. But it's so cool because they're doing the same thing just Daredevil cuts it off sooner, but he gets mm-hmm. on such a high horse. And I love, I mean, so many writers have written that that argument between the two of them in different ways, but mostly successful ways because each feels super justified. And I feel that you, the reader, kind of get where each is coming from. Like, Punisher's yeah. like, no, they should be killed. That is the ultimate way to rid the streets of them. And you're like, yeah, that makes sense. And then Daredevil's like, yeah, but that's how, you know, where do you draw the line as far as when you're a murderer and you're just as bad as them? And like, that also makes sense. Um, and I love that both of those guys, at their best writing, I think, hate each other for those reasons. Because, and yeah. it's, I think it's like the same reason that like, I fight with my mom so hard is because we're so fucking similar. And I think that, that there is something to be said about two characters that are cut from the same cloth, albeit slightly different, but they can't jive because they're so similar, you know? Yeah, yeah he's, uh, he's such a cool character. He's so gritty, he's so dark, and there have been so many writers and so many iterations of him, so many sagas of him that have worked. And Frank Miller, I think, was one of the first. Right. He finished his run in the mid-'80s. It was like mm-hmm. around 1986, he... He moved away from writing Daredevil, and the person who took his place ended up making a huge impact on this character, and and we actually got to talk to her. We're talking, of course, about Anne Nocenti. She's definitely one of my favorite writers, and I know that like critically, she's hailed as one of the better Daredevil writers for sure, and there are multiple reasons for that. One, she was on the book for a long time. Yeah. Everyone, if you guys don't know her by name, she was the writer, and she wrote a ton of Marvel stuff in the late 80s, early 90s. She was on the book when John Romita Jr. was drawing. 
So yeah. you know that like she that was some really really great stories, some really really memorable storylines. She did it for almost four years, and that and I don't know if people know, but like that's a long time for a comic book writer. Usually, a comic book writer will do a year or two, you know, get a couple runs in and then move on, unless they do it forever. It's like either you write that series forever, or you come and do a little bit here, a little bit there. But to do four years straight of writing a book, that's that's pretty big. Yeah, and again, especially for one writer, and 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 Romita Jr. was with her for almost all that time too. But she's an amazing comics creator to begin with, and she's also like a journalist and a filmmaker and a yeah. and a prose writer and all these other stuff that like we couldn't even get into because we didn't have the time. We just pretty much stuck to Daredevil and some of her other Marvel stuff. But I mean, she kind of cut her teeth with Arthur Adams as well as like dude Barry Windsor Smith, who was the artist on the Weapon X, the original Weapon X miniseries. Yeah. He did some Daredevil stuff with. Her. She really did some amazing, amazing stuff. Well, she's the one who gave him, gave Matt Murdock the nonprofit Urban Legal Center. Mm-hmm. I mean, she brought in a lot of like pretty heady things. I mean, and we're saying this like after following up Frank Miller, she brought in some heady things. She confronted a lot of sexism, a lot of racism, and you know worked that into fighting villains with Daredevil and she introduced the the antagonist Typhoid Mary right uh, which, which I is think a, is a huge, huge point for yeah. him like she's a very important character for me part of the reason I love Matt Murdock is because he has so much trouble with ladies and he always tries to do things with ladies and it works and it doesn't work and it's such a big thing for him as a character I try to do lovely. things with the ladies and he does <laughs> do things that's the other reason I like him <laughs> I think that's a very important part of who he is. Like, you know, you have Peter Parker who, you know, can't, for the longest time, can't get ahead with the ladies. Then he finally gets Gwen and he also gets Mary Jane and it's always between those two. It's much more grounded. But, like, Matt Murdock is kind of a player, in my opinion. And I think that's very important to his psyche and who he is as a character. Then you get someone like Typhoid Mary who is a person with literal split personality disorder And she comes at him in two different ways. One is a regular woman who's a love interest for Matt Murdock. And two is this ballsy killer, you know, supervillain who is appealing to the daredevil side. And she's appealing to him both in that world of like, you know, super costume shit. But also there's a huge sexual attraction between them that's not, you know, blatantly pegged. But like it's there. Typhoid Mary is a very important part of... Matt Murdock's mythos and development and Daredevil's mythos and development as you move on with the series and I think shit that happens there impacts everything else that he does after that so I think that's a it's a huge huge creation so you know good on Nocenti for doing that I think she makes a very important contribution to that you met Anne Nocenti at Comic-Con yeah, yeah. A lot of the times what we do for these interviews is we'll look and see what panels are going to be there. And as a fan going to Comic-Con, I like to look at the panels and see who's going to be around. Yeah. And this time I started to be like, oh, man, that would be a great interview. That would mean a lot. I mean, it means a lot to me to talk to someone like Anno Cindy because I, I love those books. And those books are very important to creating one of my favorite characters. So to actually have some time to talk with her one-on-one would be amazing. So I reached out to her and explained, you know, that we had the, the show and that we were going to interview some people and as a a Daredevil fan I'd love to talk with her and she agreed immediately and was super cool about it and uh, I met her I met her the first afternoon that I was at Comic-Con and uh, got to interview her for a bit and she was super laid back super cool and she truly was one of those women who like clearly understands you know she wasn't just writing 
to write. It wasn't just a job for her. She kind of understands these characters and gets in their head. She takes a really interesting approach that I won't go too much into because we talk about it a little bit in, in, in the interview itself. But uh, she right. was just super down to earth and super fun to talk to. And again, one of those people that I, I could have easily talked to her for two hours, you know, with some of the material I prepared, but just based on the other stuff she said, there was a thousand, you know, everything answer she gave, I just had 20 more questions. But uh, yeah. super cool, man. She's she's good stuff. So, yeah, I want to check out that interview. Let's drop it. All right, Launchpad, we are here at Comic-Con 2018 with none other than comic book legend Anne Nocenti. Anne, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with us. Sure. You guys might know Anne from a thousand different things. She's a journalist. She's a documentary director you've even been a teacher before yeah in haiti i taught filmmaking in haiti oh. and in the arctic circle uh usually you know far off places i i could sit down with you all day just to talk about that stuff but we're here at comic-con we're doing a lot of different comic book stuff someone that's very close to my heart who i think you know very well is matt murdoch daredevil yes i want to start i mean there's so many things i want to i want to know about your career, but let's just start start at the very beginning. Give us a little bit about, about your background. Where did you grow up? How did you kind of get bit by the comic bug? Uh, I was invented in my father's basement. I was a test tube <laughs> baby. And one day I was like desperately looking for a job and I answered a, an ad in the back of a porn magazine and got a job writing for Marvel Comics. I forgot that they used to, <laughs> used to advertise in porn. And right, and right now um, I'm just giving you kind of an alternate reality because, you know, the reality is really fucking boring. Oh. Like, probably should you know you that. could say, fuck everything uh, you want. You know, <laughs> boring little Catholic girl raised in New Jersey, suburbia. We're in Jersey. Oh my God, really? You really well, want to know? Well, I'm from. We're actually both from New. Well, oh. he's from Connecticut. I'm from New York. So Wyckoff, New Jersey, which we used to call Wackoff. <laughs> <laughs> this interview is off to a great start. This is amazing. All right, so you're in Jersey and you pick up a porno mag. And actually, there, my my father w w is a scientist, so part oh. of that was true. And uh, he had a laboratory and at Columbia Presbyterian, and he used to experiment on animals. So I think I had an early love of things ghoulish and monstrous that I also didn't really think it was so ghoulish because it was my dad was trying to help the world. How awesome, though! What an what an amazing way to to be brought up. Did did? My yeah, my dad was a superhero. That's so, uh, how awesome. I mean, for anyone to say that about their father is incredible. But like. Your father was like actually doing stuff to make change well, and, and yeah, he was better people. That's great. And so usually what you do is you experiment on uh, animals and animal rights. People come throw blood at you. But if you kind of conduct between the blood, you um, maybe help someone with an endocrine problem. That's incredible, though. How cool. Uh, were you were you actively interested in the different things he was doing to the point where like you would want to go see what he was doing? Or were you just content that he was a good... I was very curious about his medical books. You know, I was very curious about that kind of stuff. And um, anyway, skip ahead to um, New York and I got a job at Marvel Comics. Mm -hmm. And uh, Marvel Comics, you know, there were a lot of really amazing mentors back then. For instance... Steve Ditko used to come into the office. Mm -hmm. Marie Severin was there in the office. John Ramita Sr. I mean, I could go on and on, but you just, you walked into the Marvel bullpen and you learned just by sitting there eavesdropping a lot. I mean, you could you could listen to Frank Miller and Walt Simonson talk about Jack Kirby, you know? So you got a real education very quickly. You could walk over to John Remita Sr.'s table and watch him throw a piece of vellum across someone's drawing and show them how 
you know, if you hadn't cut the foot off in the frame, the character would seem more like they were really soaring in the air. And so I learned uh, graphic, you know, sequential art through watching real pros work on uh, young artist pages. That's incredible. And you got to underline the word real in real pros there because I feel that if someone were to work at Marvel today, if they probably worked real hard, there would be people who would help mentor them and, and not, not to compare artists or, or creators to other creators, but you were there in one of the heydays that made not only comics what it is, but certainly Marvel what it is. I mean, early 90s well, really started to gain think footing. That things changed quite a bit. This was before the movies. Mm -hmm. You know, this was before this thing called the internet. I mean, we're talking pre internet. You know, most of us started on typewriters. Sure. And then we moved on to getting computers. So, you know, everybody had enormous deadlines. There was not enough talent. As an editor, I would have like, uh, t you know, eight to ten books to get out the door, working with, you know, mostly Chris Claremont on the mutant books. And then I had to write a couple comics. And sometimes as an editor, I'd be like, you know, we really need to expand this line and also do a... Wolverine miniseries, who the hell can I get to write it? And it wasn't like there was a line out the door. It was the 80s, so it was like, uh, it was easier to get into the business, both as sure, a writer yeah, and yeah. an artist. That doesn't say that everybody wasn't also talented. Sure, but, absolutely. You know, now uh, the movies have changed everything. Yeah, that's true, right? My parents know what many of these properties are, even yeah. if they've never touched them. They might not know the ins and outs like you or I do, but the, the common person is so much more familiar with the entire sure. culture now. That's that's very, very interesting. How I guess I guess this is kind of jumping ahead, but how was it like being there so early when comics were such a niche that like you had to know comics and be into comics to really know it? Whereas now you go to the movie theater and you instantly are caught up with. I think 20 it's years one of, of the amazing things about storytelling and Marvel ca characters. You should, as a writer, be able to have the X Men enter a room and each one enter a room in character. Sure, like. The Beast, he can juggle with his feet, and he's brilliant. Should he be reading a book and washing dishes? You know, with I mean, it's sort of like you you should be able to take all four of the FF and have them enter a room, read Richard's arm zooming ahead to open the door for mm -hmm. everyone. You know, I mean, Johnny Storm zipping around to light the barbecue. I mean, you you tell a story, you, you, you need one panel to establish character and power. Sure. And then now we have this thing, special effects. It's amazing. It's finally, movies can match what we could do in the comics. Correct, In the right. comics, Galactus could come, you know, devour a planet, no big, you draw it. And, and then for years, the early TV shows and the early movies, it really was a matter of the special effects not quite matching. And Correct. Then, oh, gee, that costume sure looks like rubber, you know. And, and whoa, I can see he's got a little fat flat. <laughs> you know, he's got a little flap there. He's been, like, eating, you know. Sure, yeah. So I think that, you know, those things have changed. And now I just finished a year uh, working on the Marvel Museum. It's 80 years of Marvel history, and we premiered in April at Mopop in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, an amazing show. It'll be there for a year. That sounds so incredible. So Is it going to travel after that? It's a, tr it's a touring exhibition, 80 years of Marvel history, we have all kinds of amazing build-outs, like a Doctor Strange room where you can see all the possible infinities reflected. Wow. And stand there, and just like Doctor Strange, you can wonder, which one should I pick? 
Infinity War. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Is there a website or something that people can go to learn yeah, more about that? If you go to uh, Mopop Seattle, it is uh, the the museum that was the Jimi Hendrix Museum. It's got like a real rock and roll vibe to it. It's got the, the ta- uh, tornado of guitars Okay. when you walk in. And there's like, I don't know, they'll have like five or six exhibits running at any time. So there'll be... You know, Hendrix, I think Nirvana, Jim Henson, you know, so you can wander in and out to all these. And Marvel is the is taking, we took up 10,000 square feet. That's fantastic. So How cool giant is that? Show, yeah. So, guys, if you're out in Seattle, Seattle, if you're in Seattle or nearby, it's definitely worth the drive. You're hearing it from Anna Senti herself. She's telling you it is worth it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that sounds amazing. I'll keep an eye out. I, and that's something that I would drive like an hour or two. And like, I got friends and I got oh, cousins who would definitely worth go. It. You can, you can. Spider-Man hangs upside down. The girls can walk up to him and give him the kiss just like, you know, when he's hanging upside down and he gives her the kiss. Interesting. You can sit on the couch with the thing and hug him while he sleeps. There are these amazing <laughs> sculptures. Creep. You can go creep out Ben Grimm, hug him oh, in his he's sleep. he's so handsome, though. But he's cool with you hugging him he's in his sleep. Totally he's not worried cool. about it. <laughs> you just add to his dream life. <laughs> I'm sure Ben Grimm is dreaming of me. I, I, I would love to think that that's what one of the Fantastic Four was dreaming about. <laughs> so I'm here at this convention this year because we're launching The Seeds, which mm-hmm. is a one of Burger Books, Karen Berger, who's a legend, who's mm-hmm. being honored at this festival. Yep, she started um, um, Vertigo. Vertigo at D- DC. Started Vertigo. She basically gave creators the space to create. And we all know what Vertigo is. It's a more mature, I don't want to say better, but better imprint <laughs> of DC. All your favorite mature books are from well, there. Well, it's where it's where uh, Alan Moore got to do Swamp Thing, and it's mm-hmm. where Neil Gaiman got to do Sandman. Watchmen. And I mean, on, just on, on and, and on and on. on. Yeah, and so she, and I did Kid Eternity for her years ago, mm-hmm. and so now she has her own line of books. Now, David Aha is, in my mind, maybe one of the very top geniuses of storytelling. Uh, everyone knows him from his Marvel Hawkeye sure, and yeah. Iron Fist work. Yep. And so we teamed up to do a comic called The Seeds. And it's our first ever creator-owned comic. It's the first thing we've ever done that isn't a superhero. Nice. And when you don't have a superhero to hide behind, it's a little bit scarier. So we really want you to buy this comic. Interesting. Let me ask you this. Did you have fun? You were writing and he was drawing. Yeah, Did we you have, have a fun? blast. It's, it's, uh, I like to say that I, I'm the writer, he's the artist, but together we make one storyteller because we, we toss things back and forth. I'll toss him an image. He tosses back something. He tosses me a word. I toss, you know, it's like a little sure, bit sure. of a, a, a juggling act that we do with words and pictures and hope everything, you know, I mean, sure. I, I think the book is beautiful. That's great. And it's so good to hear that from a creator as a fan, because I feel that any any art, any medium where there's more than one creator, the tighter the collaboration, the better the, the final product. Right. And I think, you know, you're a writer. He's an artist. You guys can gel. I think the, the closer you are and the more you guys overlap, the more you guys work together, 
the better the final product. Like I work in film, and the same thing is true. I feel like when a, a crew is disjointed, when a cast doesn't understand the director, you clearly see that. So the in director's a, movie, a right? megalomaniac. Sure, most of the time. The There's been a couple. Prima Donna. Sure, and it's <laughs> like you could you, you don't need to even read stories on you know Variety to see that. Yeah. You could see it. It comes through in the work. In, in the work, yeah, and it's um. I also think that one of the big things here is deadlines because mm. all my life, all the comics I've done, and much of my film work was it was due yesterday. It was sure. due yesterday. And your artist, like, you're sitting there and somebody, you know, walk, you know, you go up to the Marvel office and somebody hands you, like, 10 pages, write them overnight. I mean, you're just, this is the first time, mm -hmm. and this goes back to Karen Berger, understanding that if you don't give comics room to breathe, they, they, they're cranked out. Sure, absolutely. You know? So this is also the first comic I've ever done where I don't have, like, you know, one due every month. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, let me, I want to jump back for a second. You had said uh, in this interview, you said something about we didn't have a superhero to hide behind. And I had found a quote in a, in a previous interview you did that where you, I guess you were talking about starting um, Longshot. You created the, the Marvel character Longshot. And you had said, and this was in the quote for the article, so forgive me if it's not exactly, but it said, I've never read comics, so the idea of a hero is different to me. I couldn't think in terms of a superhero hero. It was more of a conceptual hero. I tend to come up with the metaphysics before I come up with the characters. Well, I think that that was actually... I, I find it very hard to separate anything that I created without bringing the artist into it. And mm -hmm. Arthur Adams had a kind of a... We were both really young. It was our first comic. We we had a we were both quite naive, and sure. uh, he had, we had kind of a enthusiasm. We were like puppy dogs almost. Mm -hmm. And you can't Longshot came out of that. You know the sure, fact yeah. that it it really is Longshot wouldn't be who he is if it wasn't for Arthur Adams. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted a hero who didn't know who he was, who's who. Had to start all over. I think, you know, we, we called him a tabla rasa. You know, mm -hmm. he didn't really know who he was. And then we decided to give him that eye, that, you know, glowing eye. Oh, yeah. That has gone on to be, like, used in, you know, Shatterstar and Cable and all over the place. And that was just a bizarre thing. It was like I was living, the place I was living in had a one-eyed cat. And I would come out in the night to, you know, tripping over crap to go to the bathroom and they'd see this one glowing eye and it was just like uh, okay why don't we give him like one of his eyes glow and then you know sure enough arthur sends back this drawing that's spectacular that's incredible i mean it's not that easy to pull that off in a comic sure. you could you know like the guy's eye is glows and mm -hmm. so you know it was again it's like tossing ideas back and forth it wasn't me it was us tossing ideas back sure, and forth. sure sure now that's a character that you created, and you created a lot of staple characters at Marvel. Another one of my favorites is Blackheart. You created that. What about when you get the job writing for Daredevil? Was that something you tried to write? Were you trying to write for Daredevil? Did you request that, or was it assigned to No, I think what happened was people didn't really want to write Daredevil right after Frank Miller. Sure. And I think I was just stupid and naive, and you know, I was so new to comics, I didn't really understand what it meant to follow a genius. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Ralph Macchio, when he asked me to write the book, it was because, you know, he wanted to see what I could do. But I don't think he thought I'd last that long on the book. But, you know, maybe he asked every other writer possible. And sure, they all sure. went, I don't want to follow Frank Miller. And then finally he was like, hey, Ann Nocenti, she's really new to this. And maybe she's stupid enough to do this, you know. 
But I mean, I very quickly uh, brought my documentary, you know, the fact that I was obsessed with documentary film. Mm -hmm. I brought a kind of a sensibility and I lived, you know, near Hell's Kitchen. Sure. And I would just sort of walk the streets and I would take pieces of of what I saw and put it into Daredevil. And all the stories pretty much came out of like this wanting to be a do- I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker and mm. you know and find a pieces of truth on the street and so I put them in Daredevil and I had a social justice bent to me for sure so yeah. I put those and then really what happened was John Romita Jr. it's all about the artist when he was assigned to work with me he brought such an elegance and to it that his line and when when we were talking about redesigning Mephisto, when we took Daredevil to hell, when he did those first sketches of how he reimagined Mephisto, Mm -hmm. and then Johnny and I created the son of Mephisto, Blackheart, with a a similar kind of a, the prickly look of a demon, and yet at the same time, Blackheart, as he was originally conceived... He didn't want to be as evil as Dad. Right. I mean, what is it like to be the son of somebody who's unbelievably evil? What's it like for, like, Trump's kid? You know? <laughs> so it's kind of like, that was a joke. Oh, no, for sure. But, I mean, we're not, we're not you supporters know, we on know, this we know that We know that some of his policies are ruining the nation, but I was just <laughs> joking, of course. So he was like the fallen angel. You know, Blackheart was like the fallen angel. He really didn't want to follow into the footsteps of his father's pure motivations to be pure evil. So that, you know, you know, everything comes out of your, and Ralph Macchio was a great editor. So you, you know what your artist can do. You know what he wants to do. You know, is what he wants to draw. Mm -hmm. The editor is always there. So it's, it's this little triumvirate, right? There would be no Seeds without Karen Berger. Sure. David yeah. Aha and I were working on very many versions of the seeds, and we would still be working on versions of the seeds if Karen hadn't stepped in and, you know, started to lead us at least closer to the door of publishing it. You know? That's, I mean, that's, that's just, I mean, there's so much exciting stuff that I want to uh, go over with you. Let me ask you this. You had mentioned that you were on that run for so long, the Daredevil run at Marvel, and you wrote so many issues, and you were with John Romita, Romita for all of them, if not most of them. Yeah, I think uh, we, we had like a four-year run, something like that, and then I worked with Lee Weeks. Sure, and yeah. And there was one issue by Steve Ditko. That's right. Wow, man. That's, that's, what, let me ask you this. What appeals to you about either or Matt Murdock or Daredevil and Daredevil? What appeals to you about those characters? I mean, I, I've talked about this before, but I think that Daredevil has so many innate contradictions. He is a lapsed Catholic that wears a devil suit. Sure. He is a lawyer that believes in, the ju- in justice, the balance of justice that even, you know, and lawyers talk about how you have to defend the murderer, and you win some, you lose cases, you win cases. It all balances out, and again, in the end, we still have a great justice system. But Daredevil has this, uh, he can say, all right, I didn't win that case, but I'm going to go put the suit on and win it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's got, he's like the vigilante thing comes out. You know, he's handicapped, but he overcomes the handicap. Sure. I mean, that's a profound message that is for today. Mm-hmm. 
it's I don't know that it resonated like back then. Everybody thought he has all these amazing powers. You could forget he's blind, but mm-hmm. no, actually, he's blind. He's, blind. he's handicapped, and he overcame his handicap. Sure, he's a story generator. Absolutely, yeah. You can think about the different aspects of him, and he becomes an instant story generator. So I put him on the street. I gave him a legal clinic where he was helping people, mm-hmm. and then. Typhoid Mary, when Johnny and I, we were like, we want to create a villain, and we want to create a great villain sure. that is exactly, uh, all, hits all his Achilles heels. Mm-hmm. And she's a multiple personality, so if, if one personality commits a crime, will his legal mind allow the bad one to put the good one away? Sure, sure. You know, he has a thing for bad girls, so Daredevil falls in love with typhoid and matt murdoch falls in love with, with mary, mary the yeah. innocent one and he's got this protector thing always wants to protect people you know so it's it's like she was designed to be somebody irresistible to him mm-hmm. and yet be a villain so well, i gotta tell you you hit with that character you hit the nail so hard on the head for her because I was really into Daredevil by the time I read the creation, you know, her creation and her and Matt Murdock's first relationship. And I feel that many superheroes, especially now, it's fun to kind of destroy them and bring them down. At least uh, many creators seem to feel that way. I mean, it happens with almost everybody. Sometimes successfully, sometimes not. I think Matt Murdock is such a, as a character, and Daredevil, is such a glutton for punishment with that because, like you said, he likes bad girls. He has that dichotomy of personality where he's fighting for one thing one way, but then he's kind of being a hypocrite by fighting it the other way. So he's almost always battling himself. So I think he is often a target of creators trying to knock him on his ass. And I think when that doesn't work, it's glaring. But in Typhoid's case... I mean, it was such a great way to attack him. And the fact that Kingpin at least believes he's behind it for some of it, it's just such a wonderful way to attack that character that hasn't been shown before. Well, think about it. She went and got everyone that hated him. And I mean, does anyone hate you? I hope not. Well, during your during your lifetime, you know, when maybe I don't know, I, I don't know if anyone hates me either. Maybe some of my fans. Certainly the, not superpowers, at least, right? Like we only a, have regular people that might hate well, us. Well, I mean, if you think about it, in a, in a, you always have to bring everything back to the human. Sure. What would it feel like if someone went out and rounded up everyone that had a beef with you, and brought them all to right. yell at you one after the another? Same, yeah, same one it's after like the other. You always oh. try and bring it back to something human, you know, sure. like. Uh, um, so that it's comprehensible and that you can have empathy. You don't want, I don't, I've never really been the kind of writer that tells operatic stories that float above our human universe. I always sure. try and put the human element strongly front and center. So, uh, Well, I think that's definitely one of your strengths is, is hitting that human note because, I mean, that's part of why I love that character because Matt Murdock is such a human. He is faulted just across the board. And I think that you hit those, but in, in almost like a, a, not as a glaring, pointing way, but to show, like, look, this guy's a superhero, but he's also, he's also a man. I guess the last question that I want to ask you is, as far as that human aspect is concerned, and you hit upon how he likes bad boys, and Matt Murdock has certainly been a ladies' man, as a lady yourself, do you think you brought something different to writing, at least that aspect of his, his character, if not everyone? I don't actually, I, I, don't, I, I don't really know. I can't answer that question. I've, I've written The Punisher, I've written Spider-Man, I've written... 
Green Arrow. I mean, I've written a lot of male characters, mm-hmm. and I try to write male and female in some ways like human beings. Sure. You know, and and not. I don't. I certainly don't write from the point of view of gender so much. Right. Right. And so I don't know. I can't. That you ask me a question, I can't answer. Oh, it's it's very interesting. <laughs> but you are definitely. A seminal. I mean, I know I'm not the only one who says it, but you are definitely one of Marvel's greatest creators. I know certainly thank for you. Daredevil. But thank you very much for taking the thank time you. with us. Thank you. Yeah, uh, we really appreciate you being now, on the launch. Now bed. we all have to become uh, Ninja Turtles, and so that your audience knows what that means. When we started this podcast, <laughs> we were accosted by some young lady who uh, gave us all Ninja Turtle she masks. She did not know her stuff. Would you she, take a, Would you take a picture with the mask? Uh, sure. Yeah, you want to do that? All right. Okay. Let's take a picture. All right. Yeah, dude, so I love it when you can go out and get such a rad interview like this. Like, that's one of the things i got to give you a huge compliment on is, like, as much as I love to be there, I could only be at San Diego Comic-Con for one day. Mm. But, like, the fact that you can go out and get such great interviews, you ask such, like, insightful questions that usually aren't the same. It's funny because she did give you one where she was like, yeah, I've answered that question a lot. But you're like, yeah, yeah but, <laughs> but, but it's one of those ones, like, if you talk to certain people, you have to ask them. Right. You know, certain question, but you seriously nail it, man. I always, oh, I always thanks, love man. hearing I appreciate your interviews, that. dude. That was a great one. Ann Nocenti also wrote a Venom story called The Madness, which is another book that I remember reading growing up. Um, it was one of the few because, like, I would get a Venom comic. I think I had number one and number three, so I don't know what would happen, in, you know, in the middle of that story. But uh, Venom: The Madness, written by Ann Nocenti and Rumi. Guess who drew that? Who? Our buddy Kelly Jones. He was the penciler on that story. And uh, oh. you know Kelly Jones from Batman Red Rain and Batman Nightfall. Kelly Jones draws a mean fucking Venom. Dude, he draws the Venom with, like, all the little heads coming off of yes, it, doesn't Yeah, he? yeah, If you guys, I mean, if you yeah. have... First of all, if you guys don't know who Kelly Jones is, check it out. He did all the Nightfall covers with the Batman with the super tall ears. Dude, I had no idea she wrote this. I loved this comic, and I had this bitchin' toy of Venom the Madness and he had the yeah, long yes, tongue and, yes, and yes. all the little heads popping off of him. This and story, all the essentially arms. this story, he fights Juggernaut a bunch. It's beautiful. I mean, Ke- uh, Venom is one of those, those, those characters that Kelly Jones just nails. His style works so well for Venom. And if you guys know who Kelly Jones is but have not heard our interview, we actually interviewed him at WonderCon last April. So check that yeah. out. That was one of our, actually one of the favorite interviews we'd done because just talk about nerding out with another fan. I mean, he clearly is an amazing creator, but he's a fan first, and you can hear it. So check that interview out, uh, a little Kelly Jones action. And again, we've been releasing all these Comic-Con interviews, and we got a few more coming up. Next week, we have the Sideshow interviews. We got some exclusive interviews with some guys from Sideshow talking about the new collections that are coming out, about some of the new figures they're going to be releasing, and just talking to them about fandom. That was a lot of fun to talk to those guys. Yeah, those are really... We talked to uh, my buddy David and my buddy Andy over at Sideshow, and that was... It was one of those things, like, oh, yeah, it'd be cool to talk to the guys at Sideshow about the toys that they make, and it just evolved into this, like hey, you're a nerd just like I am. And we we truly love this stuff. So it wasn't like talking to people at a company about the th- stuff that their company made. It was people that yeah. care about these properties talking about, you know, the stuff that they're interested in personally, which is, I mean, that's that's exactly, that's what this podcast is. You and I are interested in this stuff, so we talk about it, you know? So yeah, those th- that's really fun. And, uh, you know, we'll upload some pictures of some of the stuff that we saw there and, and some of the stuff that, that Sideshow either has or had available. So check that stuff out for sure. That was a fun interview. And then our last interview from Comic-Con in, in two weeks 
is going to be with Dave Gibbons. And most people go, oh, Dave Gibbons, he drew Watchmen. Yes, he did, but he also wrote a bunch of comic books. And we're going to be talking to him about something that he authored that Matt and I love. This is an awesome comic book. Might not be what you think it is. So tune in for those coming up. Until next time, guys, you can keep up with us on our Facebook, on our Instagram, on our Twitter, at LaunchpadPod, and on our website, LaunchpadPod.com. Guys, we have so much awesome stuff coming up. I mean, just this last week, Matt and I finally got to podcast in person again, and he surprised me with something that we I can't uh, I cannot wait to share it with you guys. It's he got <laughs> it me so awesome. it's worth he got it. me so fucking good. It's gonna be so awesome. I mean, we've already teased it. We've we've really we we kind of we kind of dumped it on on Twitter. We we said who we were talking to, but uh, for those of you who who don't know, go find out. It's on our Twitter. It's on our Instagram. We kind of teased it, but super excited about uh, some upcoming interviews. And uh, yeah, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. You guys keep hitting us up. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you've been watching. Let you know. What, let us know what you've been doing. Hope you guys are enjoying this Comic Con interviews because we had a blast. We love talking to these legends of the industry, getting their perspectives on it. And uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun, dude. I agree. It's it's been cool, and I hope you guys are having fun listening. We got more great stuff coming. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Like we said, keep in there out for those sideshow interviews, and we got the Dave Gibbons coming and some other amazing stuff. Until next time, I'm Aaron, he's Matt, we're the Rocketeers, and we're out. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one.